I borrowed a bicycle and rode out to the wetlands. The Soviets apparently used that area as a rifle range in their day. Before that, it had been largely deforested for industry. The timber there felled for furnaces that cooked raw ingredients into glass. But in the past decade or two, it had been turned into a reserve for conservation, and so I had been led to expect a bit of bird life in the vicinity. I climbed a small tower and surveyed the scenery. It was flat, soggy country, with few distinguishing features. A stand of small pines stuck up out of the bog, and soaks and streams leaked into ponds. It had snowed only two days before. Melt filled the heath. It was the sort of country I'd seen from above when I'd flown in, smack bang in the middle of spring. Beneath the plain I had caught a glimpse of what appeared to be a moorland of moist peat, rotting tufts of snow, orchards with eldritch bare branches and heaps of mud. Now I was at ground level. The sky was overcast and there were occasional outbursts of bitterly cold wind. It seemed almost as two-dimensional as it had from above. I was there to see the black stalk, I had heard a few stories about this bird, a folklorist's rumours mostly. Storks are an omen of birth, she had said. But storks are an omen of death? This was a dichotomy that seemed to fit in her mind just fine. A friend of hers had told me at a party a few nights earlier that in their language the word poet was the same as the word for liar. I liked these people. Storks are big birds. You don't miss them. The black version is slightly smaller than the more familiar white stork, but there is something about seeing it in its charcoal dress coat that makes it stand out in the sky all the more. You catch a stark shadow soaring well below the clouds. It is the black stork, considered once upon a time the Piva Lind, the holy bird the bird that symbolised this whole land, in fact, so much so that the ancestors of my new friends were once known by their neighbours as the Black Stork people, or those who shared the habitat of the Black Stork. The Black Stork was the, sp- the, Black Stork was the spirit of the woods that used to be here, running untrammeled down to the Baltic Sea. But it's a bird that belongs to many lands. It migrates, you see. The average black stork attempts pan-European journeys some 18 times each way throughout their lives. They would leave here for the Mediterranean as soon as the summer ended. But it was only April now, the beginning of its season in the north, and it had come to breed. The males had returned to old nests and were doing some renos on them, hoping to impress a potential mate with their building prowess. If it panned out as planned, a female would soon be laying a handful of eggs in the bowl of bundled twigs that serves as a sanctuary for breeding black storks. Both parents look after the eggs. There ought to be hatchlings in six weeks. But in the last few decades, the number of black storks nesting in the north had halved. There were various reasons given. 
Their journey in spring is long, across countries where they are perhaps not considered sacred. The landscapes they like, safe and undisturbed land dotted with old trees, are less and less common within their range. And mercury has been found in the bloodstream of storks, probably from contaminated fish, and who knows what other poisons we have forced upon them as their most pernicious enemy. Anyway, I waited on the watchtower for a while. I pulled out my binoculars. There were other birds swooping, diving and fluttering, but I had no sign of the black stork. I tucked myself up as best I could out of the breeze. I had a shawl with me, and I wrapped that tight around my body. And this warmed me up. And after a while, I began to feel dozy. I was woken, I think, by a sharp honk, followed by the faintest trace of sound from flapping wings. A shadow crossed over me. I pulled out the binoculars and saw a black stalk gliding towards the top of an old pine that was half dead. That bony pine sported a messy nest in its crown I could now see. I wondered if having the stork's shadow cast upon me was not likely to give me bad luck. I tried to remember the folklorist's words. What was this an omen of? Now there was this feeling that came over me. A swirling, gnawing, woozy feeling. I watched the stork circle its nest, land upon it, and then with its head tilted, look around, look off into the distance. I had this feeling that I understood the gestures it was making. From its minimal movements, I was able to sketch a story, much like how we perceive constellations from a few stars scattered around. This stork had made its journey from the Mediterranean, from the Peloponnese in Greece, if my hunch was correct. Along the way, it had seen its acquaintances shot at, poisoned. They had endured alpine blizzards. Some had died of fatigue. It was as if each migration got harder, and now this particular black stork had made it to the end of its range, here in this Baltic bog, only to find that there were no viable mates around. The nest was still there from previous visits. The ice had dissolved in one spring daylight. The weather was cool but fine, but there was no female around. They had all fallen short, or fallen in with other males. So the holy bird fiddled at his nest with his beak. I could feel something of what he felt. His loneliness permeated the peatlands all around us, or so it seemed to me. Somewhat dazed, I stayed in that watchtower observing this bloke, the black stork, all the way through till dusk. But there was nothing to be done. The plains were lonely. I cycled back to town and felt that shadow follow me still, most certainly an omen. But when I tried to tell this story to my friends, they just smiled. And I got the feeling they were thinking how their words for liar and poet were pretty much the same.
In the past few months, I've had more luck as an amateur ornithologist than ever before. I'm not exactly a twitcher. It's not like I keep a tally of the species I've seen and get really excited when I can strike a line through another name on the list. But plenty of my time is passed sitting with the doors of this train carriage thrown open, looking up at the branches, observing the flight paths of the birds, listening to their looping calls. And maybe I'm getting better attuned to what's going on up there. Because there's always movement. And I'm consistently forced to pause and wonder what it is these feathered critters are up to. Mostly they remain a mystery. Occasionally I start to get a picture of what pattern they might be following. But before too long, I'll see one of them do something that baffles me entirely. A raven or a spinebill will perch somewhere unexpected. There will be a fight in the canopy. A whole new call will come from a familiar beak. This train carriage where I live and work was luckily enough plonked in a nice bit of forest, populated with all sorts of other animals. I've been here for more than two years now, and I first landed in the birds' busy season, in the midst of a warm spring, and quite quickly I recognised that the bush here belongs primarily to them. As I say, I haven't kept track of exactly which birds have shown up here or when. But each season I receive different visitors, and some of them turn up unexpectedly for me. They might be pardalotes next to my outhouse, for example. A dusky wood swallow may decide to make its nest just above me. A few evenings ago I saw a willy wagtail here, the first time I'd had one of these pop by. Alternatively, other birds have decided at times to make regular appointments. For a while there in early spring, a family of five native hens would appear on my lawn at 6pm every day. Three adults, two chicks, clucking loudly, moving cautiously, ducking their heads rapidly to nibble on some grass. I liked having them around, of course. Although I don't entirely miss their springtime schedule since another element of it was making their rambunctious honks and shouts late at night or in the early hours of the morning. If anyone is showing some dominance in the forest this spring, it's the grey shrike thrushes. It's just a shame they have such a clumsy, dull, common name. The Latin species name is harmonica, which suits them better. I once had a convoluted dream that led me to briefly attempt a campaign at giving the thrike shrush a new name derived from a phrase I once came upon in the Albanian language, but I quickly thought better of that. Actually, Tasmanian old-timers apparently nicknamed the grey shrike thrush Whistling Dick, which is not much prettier, but at least has a bit of character. Whatever the case, they're lovely birds, and indeed they whistle beautifully and exuberantly in luscious loops with variations in tone and melody. And although they can be bullies towards their smaller rivals, they also show great confidence and curiosity. And of all the birds I've met out here, the grey shrike thrush has actually come inside the train carriage more often than most. Which is a bit of a worry. In the tight confines of the wagon, with all my unkempt stacks of books and wobbly piles of dishes and glassware around, 
It seems inevitable that they're going to make a problem in here one day. But it's a price I'm willing to pay for becoming so well acquainted with these whistling dicks. And so far they haven't made a mess. I've recently met a woman in her 20s who has moved from Melbourne to take a job as a tour guide in a Tasmanian national park, a place with plenty of bird life in it. Her new housemates are also guides, old hands, mates of mine. We were all playing a sort of word game at their house a while ago, a version of Scrabble, let's say. And one of us put down the word Wren, W-R-E-N. What's that, the young guide said. It seems strange that she did not know what a wren is. The fairy wren, after all, is probably one of the birds Australians are most familiar with. The males delicate and striking in their light blue strip. My new acquaintance excused herself by saying that she was at a disadvantage since she'd grown up in Melbourne, where the only birds that could be seen were pigeons. But I didn't think that was right. There are definitely fairy wrens in Melbourne. And far more than pigeons, there are also parrots and honey-eaters and swallows and fantails, even peregrine falcons there. But there's something to be said for the way we nowadays have to train our eyes to witness these other animals with whom we might share our lives. In the cities, people tend to avert their gaze. This is mostly to avoid seeing our fellow humans, and I can sympathise with that, I guess. But it's a costly habit, I reckon. It makes us miss a lot of what goes on around us. Interactions between creatures of all kinds. I consider myself lucky to have never really lived in a city. To have grown up on a bush block. To have seen without meaning to a vast variety of animal life. And that was why I chose several years ago to move to where I am now. To a valley with plenty of habitat for a lot of different creatures. I wanted to open myself up further to the activities of those with whom I share this time and space. And not just people. When I first moved out to this neck of the woods, it was early spring. I was forewarned by someone who'd lived here for a long time that I'd have fairy wrens rapping on the windows in the morning for some weeks. And she was right. I noticed it most when I woke early to get some writing done and both myself and the wrens were making a mutual racket, the staccato of their beaks on the glass pane combined with the erratic tinkering of my fingertips on the keyboard as I tried to wring some meaningful words out of it. I came to suspect that their tapping was affecting my typing. My rhythm changed, and even the cadence of my writing was different. But I was convinced that this was a good thing, I had moved into their territory after all, the land of fairy wrens and whistling dicks. So I figured I ought to let the birds express their preferences. Let their music influence the metre of my poetry. Learn something from their languages, strange as they may have been to my ears. All these have since become my birds, Or at least that's how I like to think about it. Maybe they think that I belong to them.
My cousins, when they were younger, had an aviary in the backyard. I vaguely remember the first time I heard that word, aviary. I would have been about seven or eight years old and new words at that time were always sinking into the soft wax of my brain. An aviary, as I was soon to see, was just a cage with a few accessories, playthings for the birds who'd live in it. In theirs, my cousins kept budgies, maybe eight or ten of them, colourful little scraps that were named after the characters on a TV game show called Gladiator. I think they mostly had names of Roman emperors. Although that is perhaps an embellishment of my own invention, I'll have to check with the cousins. But in the meantime, we'll call these poor little parrots Nero and Julius Caesar and Tiberius. I have since wondered a bit about the relationship between humans and other animals when the latter are locked up in cages. In fact, I've often found myself critical of the whole matter of having pets, but that's a conversation for another time, perhaps. In parts of Northern Europe, like England and Flanders, there's a traditional competition that involves goading caged birds into singing. I'm not sure exactly how you win. I presume the more eloquent birds are deemed the winners although it's not as if the birds get very much from it. They are slaves for their owners, really. These people seem to coddle their birds and care for them in a sense, much like my own cousins gave each and every imperious budgie a solemn ceremonial burial. But it still seems to me a very strange way to relate to anyone. Finches, I learned, are the bird of choice for these games. This is of interest to me because my surname is from an old English dialect word for finch. I've been told it's an old name, and not terribly uncommon in parts of eastern England or the south of Scotland. I meet a lot of people called Spink around Fife, I was once told by an old fellow on a cold Scottish beach. I enjoy thinking about how some ancestor of mine might have happened upon such a name. Were they great singers? Did they wear brightly coloured clothing? Did they come from some region famous for its finches? Or were they in the bird-caging trade? There are plenty of finches in Europe, and many more elsewhere, but I like to think that the finch from whom I have obtained my surname is the goldfinch. It's a small, sociable bird that wears painterly patches of crimson and canary on its body. The writer J.A. Baker compared its gentle little chirp to the tinkle of chilled wine. A friend of mine who rides many kilometres on his bicycle around Tasmania says that goldfinches often become fellow travellers, flitting between branches and fence posts to keep him company along the way. Goldfinches aren't native to Australia but they're said to have arrived in the 1850s, the same decade that my Sphinx ancestors sailed out to set up home on Tassie's northwest coast. Like us, goldfinches have wriggled their way into the matrix of natural relationships that makes up life on this island. I'd like to think that, like us, they seem to have not done too much harm. Goldfinches are far from the worst pest that has come here uninvited in the two centuries since Whitefellas rocked up. Yet perhaps to a different eye, a goldfinch is a symbol of intrusion and change. 
and perhaps my family name is too. We certainly present a very demanding need to readjust to the imperfections of the post-colonial world where weeds and invaders of all kinds intermingle. It happens all over the world. But in Tasmania, maybe we notice this more keenly because we still have some large patches of bush or heath that are mostly uncompromised by introduced species. But in the suburbs, on farms, you see thistles and blackberries, rabbits and cats, goldfinches, sparrows, starlings, miners, blackbirds, and indeed even peacocks. In fact, in Tasmania, even the kookaburra is introduced. It's brutal to smaller birds and it's often accused of overhunting frogs and lizards. A mate of mine, a migrant who has lived here for 30 years and yet never lost his thick Middle European accent, identifies closely with the kookaburra, even as he insists on mispronouncing its name, although perhaps he does it on purpose. The other night I heard him proclaim, It's not meant to be here, but neither am I. I'm a bloody cockaburra. As for the goldfinch, recently I saw a nest of theirs, a tidy little bowl in a pine tree down the road. I looked closely at the bric-a-brac from which they'd made it. Caught in a slant of evening light, I saw among the twigs and grass some strands of human hair. They looked very familiar. I would almost swear that they were mine. And it seemed somehow right to give them to the goldfinches, to participate in their homemaking. An exchange, perhaps, for the name they gave me. The Karawong is a big bird in a black cloak with just a few white feathers fringing its tail. It has a beady yellow eye, watchful and severe, and a quick and curious mind. Ask any fisher or bushy, the Karawong's a cluey bird. In the mountains they've learned to unzip and even unclip bushwalkers' backpacks. And after so many years of finding scroggin and muesli in Ziploc bags, they've come to associate plastic with good tucker. And it's like the Currawong has a hunger that cannot be curbed. It does not know restraint. Its beady eyes are too big for its beak, if that makes sense. One time on an empty plateau, I pulled out a sandwich, and a dozen birds suddenly descended on me. This bloke once spun a yarn for me. He'd bought a pie and a soft drink from the visitor centre at Cradle Mountain. I put the pie down to open me coke, you see. 
and this bloody Karawan come in and pinched the pie, paper bag and everything. Even the sachet of tomato sauce. And while I was distracted, another one flew through and took the can of Coke. At the train in spring, I have seen Karawongs come together in great restive gatherings, a score of them or more, babbling in their garbled language, yapping and arguing, talking over the top of each other. How is it that such sounds well up in them? How do they push these songs through their throats? And what is it that they're saying? You would suppose they are trying to communicate something, but are they afraid? Are these sounds of alarm? Doesn't seem like it. Are they trying to point out to one another where they might find food or a good place to nest? None of the activity around them seems to suggest such conversation. So is this just how they go about finding a mate? Or is this forest just a campground for groups of friends and families on some sort of seasonal meeting or retreat? If so, I suppose it's not that different from how some humans go about meeting potential partners or catching up with cobbers. Look through the front windows of your local bar, for instance, and you'll see what also seems a mishmash of conversations, language and laughter overlapping, loud, shrill talk, all this hullabaloo and no one's even listening. Perhaps it's just my perspective. But I often think the social life of humans is all too much like those of birds. We are raucous like cockatoos, an absolute rabble like the ravens and currawongs that throng in the bush. Or maybe what's happening is that each spring these currawongs come together in what amounts to a political conference. And each speech that is being made is an attempt to suggest the direction that the flock should go next to elicit support, consolidate a power base, take control. It seems a bit hectic, but a soundtrack of these get-togethers of Currawongs in spring could match that of, say, a sitting in Parliament. For most of the time, our ministers may as well be making the same racket, meaningless to us. The bird books would have us believe that a Currawong's call goes, car week week car. Well, is that any less pleasant than the latest press interview you heard from Canberra or wherever? To what do all these conversations amount? These squawkings and screechings of humans and birds alike? Are any of us truly communicating something, in the sense of there actually being some back and forth exchange, something to say? Do we just like the sound of our sharp, shrill voices? Are we drawn to random noises? Frequently I find myself wondering if there aren't other ways to share stories. I, for one, would like to speak less over the top of other creatures. To listen once in a while. Learn the speech patterns of all sorts of animals. After all, what more might I understand if I had a better sense of what the Currawongs wanted and when? If I could interpret their nuanced noises? If I could make friends with my birds? 
Then the Currawongs go on rampages and lose my trust. At a house I once lived in, on the opposite side of the river from where I am now, some of them decided to take the roof screws out and started lifting Colourbon from the veranda like common vandals. Another had it in for the flowers on a big camellia bush. I looked out the window during one of these sprees and saw one Currawong with a piece of red plastic in its beak, building it repetitively on a fence post, trying to kill it. Here at the train I came home one day to find that they'd peeled off the laminated surface of a table I had outside. For a little while I had fairy lights up. I left the solar battery for them outside to charge. But a Currawong came along and snipped its cord for no bloody good reason at all. And one afternoon, as I sizzled up some wallaby mince for a dinner of spaghetti bolognese, the whole gang of currawongs appeared in the forest around me, clinging to branches in silence like spies, like a secret society. Then their crazy chorus started up. And it is quite a song. I think of some of my own talk of late. It's a bit like what a currawong vomits up after it's had a feed in the hills. A cast is what they call it. The skins and seeds and other hard-to-digest bits of whatever they've been eating, stuck together in a sort of rectangular shape, scattered around the mountains. Sometimes I find myself regurgitating the latest gossip and news. Headlines from The Guardian, opinions from the ABC... Sentences I've gleaned from writers better than myself. I hurl it all on the ground at the feet of my friends. Every now and again I feel a stronger urge just to shut up for once. Car week, week car.
What must it be like to soar the way they do? To get the balance right, right in the middle of the air. To feel around for thermals and currents, then find them. To hover and glide. To go from touching land to gallivanting in the atmosphere. And then finding the earth again, all in one foul swoop, so to speak. With one great leap and the flutter of some feathers. I look up and see her perfect flight. She emerges from her roost on the branch of a great blue gum on the low slopes of a distant mountain. Against the dark rock, enfolded within black wings, her stark white stomach flashes like a magnesium flame. She is beautiful and ethereal, angelic and very strange. The shades of a sea eagle are impeccable, plumage without blemish, like leatherwood blossom. It has been an enviable skill to witness throughout a season in which I have mostly felt quite stuck on earth. Perhaps I have thought, I've lost the ability to catch momentum like I used to. I no longer have the habits of travel. I can't adopt any such movements. I try to catch the currents or let a thermal lift me high in the air. But it's only a fantasy, like the story of Icarus. What human could ever compare themselves to an eagle? Yet then, out of the corner of my eye, I see another raptor soaring. Larger, more angular, moving at a more regular trajectory. Not searching for prey, but predatorial in its own way. Not the rarest bird, but perhaps the most unusual that's evolved so far. I'm talking about an aeroplane. A 19-seater twin turboprop, swooping then ascending in a great arc over the blue channel of Bass Strait. And I thought, you know what? I could be on the next one that takes off. And so I was, my first flight in over two years. I climbed into what amounted to a flying tin can and let it take me up to cloud level. Half an hour later, we descended to an island with a clunk. The wheels caught the runway heavily, screeching slightly. Whereas the sea eagle might occasionally let out a lazy honk and little more. There is something impressive in the way the machinery operates, but everything about an aeroplane is more awkward than any raptor. And no comparison shows the difference more obviously than when you see a sea eagle's effortless flight shortly after watching the clamorous strain of a plane taking off. A week on an island, then, among a cornucopia of birds, hooded plovers that nervously paced along the beach and oyster catchers that printed their hieroglyphics in the sand, 
scrub wrens that rooted around under the shrubbery, white-fronted chats that twittered atop a pitted-out crop of limestone, Pacific gulls that stuffed stripy fish into their gullets, and a firetail finch that splashed a fierce red streak into some branches. And as I walked back towards the aerodrome, I watched a pair of sea eagles rise over the shoreline at low tide, scaring off various species of other birds. And yet a few moments later, the eagles had climbed high over the granite mountains and inscribed circular motifs in the sky, the most ancient of symbols. Surely, I thought, these are the kings and queens of the sky. Then I got into the little plane again and let myself be lifted back up in a hurricane of engine noises and carbon emissions with a handful of other passengers heading back home. I wondered if my birds had missed me. I hoped I might have had a better understanding from my own efforts at flying, but I suspected it probably wasn't the case. Tell me, did Icarus ever have a yarn with the eagles of the Mediterranean before his ill-fated journey into the sky?' 